Well, Jesus has a warning for you and for me. A warning that, that I would say probably could not be more relevant to us in the culture in which we live. And the warning's simple. Do not live for the applause of other people. Do not live for the approval of the wrong audience. And in our day of, of social media, reality TV, can you imagine a topic more relevant for us? Has there ever been a people more desperate for public applause or more needy for public recognition? Now, don't you remember the good old days when all you had to do was worry about the people you were, that were next to you judging you about what you were doing and saying? Right now, it's just the whole world that can look in and judge you, right? That if you send out the wrong tweet and get on an airplane, you might find that the whole world hates you within a couple of hours. There are so many more opportunities now for you and for me to be judged and watched. And so many more opportunities for you and me to perform and seek attention for ourselves. At The Onion, a satirical news outlet recently ran an article that, that sort of humorously and sarcastically offers you some tips about how to manage your personal brand um, on the internet. It's just four quick tips they, they give to you. First, create a professional website to show off the work that has failed to get you hired. Right, second, build a, a public or build a fan base by loudly inserting yourself into the public sphere. This is my favorite. Public, people love raw, unfiltered personalities, so try to meticulate the meticulously cultivate the impression that you have one of those. And lastly, remember that the internet is where the best, most innovative ideas win, so try to be as physically attractive as possible. Right? There's always an audience, always someone to, to impress, always someone we're performing in front of. And yet there's something tragically ironic for, for us who live in this culture. Because if we have any rules as a culture, any, if we had one rule as a, a culture, it'd be this. It'd be, be true to yourself. Right? Don't let anyone else tell you how to live or don't care what other people think. You decide for yourself. Decide what to be and go be it. That's our one culture's rule. Right? That, that We have said there is no audience that matters. You are your own audience. You don't need to listen to an impressive tradition or family obligations or social norms. There is no audience for you. You are your own audience. And yet it doesn't take long to see you and I. We completely do not live in to that cultural promise. That we, the ones who say, there's no audience but yourself, be true to yourself. We have more audiences than anyone. We live before, any, before more audiences than maybe any culture in history. At school, at work, in front of your kids or in front of your parents. On social media, through sports, through your academics, even church. So many identities to manage in so many places you have to keep up appearances. Or maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, I don't have that problem. I, I genuinely don't care what anyone else thinks of me ever. You're the only one in your audience. And if, if that's what you're thinking, I would just, my, the cynic in me just says, really? Like you've never bought a, a clothes or a car or taken a job or said a joke in front of someone else because you wanted to impress or because you were performing before an audience to win their approval. Really? And even if you still insist, isn't that... If you truly have no audience and you truly don't care what anyone else thinks of you ever, isn't that either deeply narcissistic or even worse, incredibly lonely? You're on stage by yourself and there's no one else there. 
Now, I don't care where your life is at. This is a problem for us because either you're, you're captured by the audiences of those around you, what they think of you, you want their approval, you're not getting it, or you're alone and you really don't care and there is no community around you. We're always performing. We need help. If only we listen to what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 6. Last week we looked at, at most of Matthew 5, and Jesus' basic point in all of Matthew 5 is, is you have a heart problem. Right? The reason you're angry, the reason that you lust, the reason that you, you have trouble telling the truth, it's not because you break the rules, it's because your heart wants to do the wrong thing. You need a new heart. And in Matthew 6, Jesus is, is telling something you already know, that maybe, maybe you haven't quite as acknowledged yet. That Matthew 5 says you have a heart problem, and Matthew 6 says you have an audience problem. So he warns you, and offers you a way out. It warns you about the danger of the wrong audience. He shows you how you can be free of the wrong audience. And he offers you a promise if you live before the right audience. So the danger, how to be free, and lastly, the promise. So let's jump into Matthew 6 under those three headings, starting with the danger of the wrong audience. There really, if you want to understand all 18 verses of, of Matthew 6, 1 through 18, which is where we're at, and so if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn there, pimp out, we're only going to be in Matthew 6 today. If you want to understand those 18 verses, it's, it's verse 1 in chapter 6. That's what all of eight, the 18 verses are about. When Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And then the next 17 verses just unpack that verse. And what Jesus will do to unpack that verse is give us three case studies. Three things that every good person would have done in that day. Three things that every person would have been expected to do in that day. To give to the poor, to pray, and to fast. And through these case studies, Jesus unpacks for us the danger of what happens when you and I begin to live before the wrong audience. And so let's start with what Jesus says about giving to the poor. Verse 2, thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do, in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The Jesus here, he's warning us against being hypocrites. Which is something probably none of us have a problem with. We hate hypocrites. Everybody hates hypocrites, especially religious hypocrites. But no one in that day knew what a hypocrite was. Because Jesus, in this moment, he's inventing the concept of a hypocrite. Until this point, there was, that, that wasn't an idea on people's mind. And Jesus is bringing it to our attention. You see, theaters were big in Jesus' day. In, in fact, in Jesus' childhood, a theater was built just a few miles from his home. It was a theater in a nearby town called Sephoris. And in fact, since it was, uh, Jesus was a builder himself, he may have, alongside his father Joseph, helped to build this very theater. And so a hypocrite, the word Jesus uses here, it's, it's simply an actor. That what Jesus is saying here is, is when you give to the poor, you can't do it as an actor. Right? You're not on a stage in front of other human beings trying to entertain them or approve or seek their approval. It's not why you give to the poor. And this is where we all nod our head in agreement, right? Yeah, religious hypocrites are the, are, are the worst. But I, what Jesus is saying here, it doesn't just hit religious people. Hypocrisy is something that, that goes far beyond religion. And if you ask any 
uh, fundraiser, they'll tell you we have the same problem in our culture that they had in that day. They'll ask any fundraiser, they'll tell you it's really easy to raise money if you can promise someone you'll put their name on a new building or a new road or highway. Right? If you've been to some churches, there's someone's name all over the church building, right? Because they, they gave their they gave money and said, if I'll give if you do this for me. But no one wants to give to maintenance costs. Right? No one wants their name on a mop bucket. And so in our culture, it's hard to attract generosity unless you also offer attraction or approval or evidence of your gift. And Jesus is looking at all of us and saying, listen, don't live your life so that others will notice you. Will think highly of you. Don't live your life so that others will be impressed by you. So he starts with giving to the poor. He moves to prayer next. This is one I feel the most. After, after all, if you, anytime you start praying in front of other people, it's hard not to think that the, of the people around you and think of them as an audience. And that's not totally a bad thing. And, and, and frankly, we pastors are the worst at praying, knowing there's people around us. Right? We pray and kind of preach at the same time while we're praying as well. Right? Which means, unless we're pray preaching at God, like we have the wrong audience in mind. Like prayer is not for preaching to get across the, the part of the sermon I wish I'd said. Right? It's, and pastors were the worst at this. Or, or maybe you have the opposite problem of the people in this passage. That because you're so terrified of what other people will think of what you're praying, you actually, you just don't pray out loud in front of others. That the opinions of others are, are so capturing to you that you can't pray out loud. I could sympathize with that. That we have this crippling desire to impress others, and sometimes even that comes out in prayer, which means we have the wrong audience or we don't try. And so that, that's one reason Jesus says praying could be wrong things, is, is, can be wrong is if you try to impress other human beings. But then the second way, or the second thing we try to impress, the second person we try to impress is, is God. That's the point of verse 7 when Jesus says, When you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. The point here isn't so much that the Gentiles used a lot of words when they prayed. So this isn't Jesus saying, hey, only short prayers are okay, although sometimes that's okay. But the point is, is that in this type of prayer, you're using your words to impress God to get him to do something for you. Right? You think if you use words in just the right way, or you, you ask in just the right way, or you repeat the, fra- the, the phrase enough times, then God will get you to do what you want him to do. But in that case, God isn't the audience. You are. Your wants, your desires are the audience. And God's only indirectly involved. And if, if God wasn't the barrier between you and that thing, you wouldn't even need to involve him at all. Right? The audience there, it's not God. It's your stuff. It's whatever you want God to give you. So again, Jesus is saying, listen, do not live your life in such a way where others notice you. Where you live so that others will think highly of you. So that others will be impressed by you. So he starts with giving to the poor. He moves to prayer. And lastly, he goes to fasting, which was a practice all Jewish people would have engaged in. An act where you abstain from food in order to focus and, and be devoted to God in the moment where you're giving up food. And yet what people would do is they would, they would fast and they would paint their faces. They would forgo the normal hygiene for the day, right? And so, so you didn't just look. They, they didn't just look like they loved God. They smelled like they loved God. And so this the season of Lent began for us this past Wednesday. 
A time when Christians typically choose to fast from something for a season to spend time reflecting on Christ and leading up into the celebration of Easter. Right? And then we post it on Facebook and we give photos of our updates. We let our friends all know what we're fasting from, what we're giving up, right? It's the same thing. And Jesus is saying to us, do not live your life so that others will take notice of you. Do not live your life so that others will think highly of you. Do not live your life with an audience of other people in mind. And Jesus, he's not, I don't think he's just being lighthearted about this. He, he begins with the word he only uses two, two times in the Gospel of Matthew. The other is to religious leaders at the end, warning them of the judgment to come. And, and, and it's here, it's the first word in Matthew 6, beware. Beware of practicing your righteousness before others. Beware of living in front of the wrong audience. Which raises the question, what's the danger? I mean, you and I, no doubt we all live in some way shaped by wanting to impress, wanting others to notice us, wanting others to think highly of us. So what's the danger in that? Jesus says it over and over again in the passage. The prime danger if you live your life for the approval to take notice, for, for others to take notice of you so that others will like you, if that's your chief concern in life or even a primary concern in life, Jesus says you have your reward. You have your reward. This is as good as it gets for you. That if you insist on living your life before others for, for their opinions in order to be praised by them, to be liked by others, what you see is what you get. You have your reward. So what does that mean? Well, I think I know, I think I know what Jesus is saying here because I've, I've, I've broken these commandments or I've done exactly what Jesus says not to do. That, that in high school, I, I did a fast and, and I did everything Jesus told me not to do. I mean, I, I still showered because I wanted girls to still like me. So I, I still smelled good and looked all right. But everyone knew what I was doing and, and I didn't try to hide it. And, and I did the fast with my friend Matt. And we realized um, about halfway through that we had, we had timed the end of our fast right in the middle of a high school play, um, which meant we would either have to, to uh, break the fast in the play or extend it by a couple of hours. And there's no way we're going to extend it by a couple of hours. So we decided we're going to break the fast right in the middle of a high school theater play. And our favorite place to eat at the time was a place called Penn Station. There's only one here in Kansas City. Um, but, but it makes hot sub sandwiches. And my favorite sandwich from Penn Station is, is the Italian, um, which has pepperoni, salami, onions, vinaigrette, banana peppers. I mean, you could smell that sandwich from a half mile away if you had no nose. And so I get that. My friend Matt, we get our sandwiches. We, we get into the play. It's a dark theater. There's like 500 people in there. They're doing the play, and we break out our food. And, man, you could smell that sandwich from a half mile away, right? That my friends told me they could smell it backstage. Like it was obvious what we were doing and we're sitting there eating the sandwich in the middle of this play. And Jesus said, I got my reward. So what does he mean? What does he mean by that? Well, two, I think two things. I mean, probably many things, but two things stand out. One is, is that if you, if you do your righteousness, if you do your good deeds for other people to see, there's no inner life change that will happen for you. Right, the whole reason you fast, pray, give to the poor is not, not just to glorify God, but it's also to, to change your own heart and life. Right? Last week we talked about the spiritual disciplines are where God gives you a new heart, where those practices change you. But if you do those things, if you pray, read your Bible, whatever it is, if you do it to be praised by others, there's no inner life change that comes with it. You wanted the praise of other people. That's why you did it and you got it and it's over. You have your reward. It's over. 
So one, there's, there's no inner life change. But secondly, I think Jesus does this to make us all feel dissatisfaction. It's almost like he's asking you, do you, do you want this to be your reward? That other people like you, that other people think more highly of you. Because it's not a reward, is it? It's crippling. That a life living for the praise of others, living for the approval of others, living for the attention of others is enslaving. You'll always need more applause. You'll always need more approval. So that's why we keep creating new audiences, right? New places where we can go and seek our identity, seek joy, seek approval from the, the crowd. And those who have received the most praise in life, I think they, they get this more than anyone else. Um, that I, I was recently watching a, a clip of, of Lady Gaga, only because someone else told me this might work for the, the sermon, not because I search clips of Lady Gaga. But anyway, so she was, she's being interviewed by a group of performing arts students or, or something, and, and as she was talking about this emotional crisis she had recently because of her fame, the, the anxiety her fame caused her, how she can't reply to a text without wondering what the media will think or what the other person will think. She made this comment, which just captures what Jesus is saying in Matthew 6 perfectly. So this is the age we live in. We are unconsciously communicating lies about ourselves to other people all the time. And I don't care if you're famous or not. We all do this. Communicate lies about ourselves all the time. Sometimes unconsciously. We don't know we're doing it. Sometimes not. I think that's, that's what most is scary about Matthew 6 and really the story of Jesus' life. That I think when we think of hypocrisy, we think of people who know they are frauds and are intentionally deceiving those around them. But that's not what's going on here. The people who are praying and fasting and, and, and giving to the poor, they think they're serving God. And Jesus is saying they're not. They're not just deceiving the people around them. They're deceiving themselves. They're living for the approval of others and they don't know it. This is a problem for us. Whether you're religious, you believe in God or not, the living for the wrong audience is a crippling life. You will never have enough approval. You will never have enough praise. You will never get the applause you're looking for. And even when you try to say, you know what, I don't care about any audience. I'm going to live and be true to myself. That's even worse because you're searching. You're going to keep searching for that audience to give you praise, to give you the joy that you're looking for. Jesus says, if you do that, you have your reward. <laughs> and it's not much of a reward. So we need a way out from this life. And Jesus offers it first by, by giving us a couple of practices here. A couple of practices that, that can help you to be free of the wrong audience. <clears throat> the first, Jesus encourages secrecy. Right? Jesus again and again says, and your father who is in secrets, your father who sees in secret, your father who is in secrets, will reward you. And again, this does not mean Jesus is against all public act of righteousness, like you can't ever do anything nice in public, but his, his point is, is that you need to be free of the applause and the approval of others. And if you want to be free of the applause and approval of others, you have to cultivate a, a huge portion of your life where no one sees what you're doing but you and but God. That, is a, that should be a significant part of your faith walk. And this could not be more countercultural to us because we are so obsessed with, with the public, the external, the visible. Now think of the, all the effort we put into manicuring our bodies, controlling our image, massaging people's opinions of us. Think of how we make decisions constantly all the time, right? What will so-and-so think? How will this affect people, the way people perceive me? Then when was the last time any of us, the first question we asked is, well, what, what would God think? 
What are my motives here? What does my heart really want? What is my private life? What are my secrets telling me? That Jesus is telling all of us to run off the stage, to flee the audience and go in secret. But he doesn't say, and you don't have an audience. No, he says, go to the right audience. Go and, and, and cultivate a space in your life where it's just you and it's God. An audience of one, the one audience that matters. That the only cure to your audience problem is to cultivate a life, a significant part of your life that is just you and God. And I, I would say this, the more visible you are, the more influence you have, the more public your role is in life, the more you need the practice of secrecy. Which means I need it probably more than anyone in this room. Right, to get before the only audience that matters and to live much of my faith life there. Right, to, that if you're speaking, if you're talking, if, if others are listening to you, if you're influential, right, lots of people trust you and you need, to, you need to keep up appearances, you better have a significant part of your life in secret. Just you and God. That's a give this week. Find a way to give to someone in need, but do it in cash. No check, no way for them to find out. So only God and you, you know who did. Fast a meal this week, but don't tell anyone. Find a way to hide it from those around you. Get up earlier this morning and one day and pray extra longer than usual. While no one's watching, no one knows, you and God. Because we live in a culture that constantly tells you the other, the other message, right? That what matters is what other people see you do. And so if you have significant flaws, if you're broken, if you have parts of you that are wrong, work really hard to hide those things and present a really good picture of yourself publicly. Right? Put on an appearance. Give a show. That is, the, that is what our culture tells us to do. And Jesus says the exact, exact opposite. What you need is you need to do the very best parts of your life in a way that no one else sees them. Just you and God, the only audience that matters. If you want to be free of the audiences around you that are crippling and enslaving, you have got to develop this discipline of secrecy. That's, that's one. The second thing Jesus is saying, which is more implicit in this passage, is that you and I need to repent of our good deeds. Oh, we tend to think of repentance of something we do when we, have, when we do things wrong and we hurt other people. And that's true, we should. But Jesus is saying here, Christians should not just be aware of the deeds that we do or the things that we do, but also the motives behind why we do what we do. Which means we Christians, we don't just repent of our, our bad things. We repent of our good things. And maybe you were here a couple of weeks ago when Jesus said... Um, it sounds like a contradiction to this passage that let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father who is in heaven. Right? Which sounds completely contradictory. Right? One passage Jesus says, do it in public so other people see it. And now he's saying, don't do it in public. Don't let anyone see it. What, what's, the, what's the common thread there? And Jesus' point is simple. It's, is that all public good deeds are not necessarily bad. But it's your motives. Are you doing them for other people to glorify God or that, are you doing them for other people to glorify you? To praise you. And so we Christians cannot just be concerned of our deeds, the outward expression of our life, but the internal motives of our heart. What no one else sees, what no one else knows. When it's just us and God, the only audience that matters. And reflecting on this text this week, I was reminded of the story Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. It's a story of a man who's, who's absolutely beautiful on the outside, and his neighbors marvel at his perpetual youth. He never ages, spoils, or fades. He looks the part. But hidden in his home is a magical portrait of himself. It's a metaphor for his secret life, his inner life, his true heart and motivations. 
Really, the, the portrait represents the part of Dorian that only God can see. And it grows more grotesque year after year after year. Even though he's impeccable to the outside world. Even though his audience adores him. But the reader knows, and for our purposes, God knows. The ugliness within. The hypocrisy and the death. And if that's the life, if you live a life for the applause of others, that's the life you get. Inwardly becoming more grotesque while outwardly looking the part and looking beautiful. You may have the adoration of others. You may have the approval of others. But you have your reward. And the portrait of ugliness within will come out in the end. That's the true you. You can cover it up as long as you try, but in the end it comes out. And the only way to be free of that is to be free of the wrong audience, which is why we need these practices, the discipline of secrecy, why we need to repent and look at not just our actions, but our motives, what's in our heart. But that's not enough. You can't just do those two things and it's all good. You need the third thing Jesus talks about here, the promise of the right audience. And this is, the, this is the hardest point because the mere fact that you've grown up in this culture rather than the culture Jesus grew up in means we're going to totally miss the tectonic shift of what Jesus is saying here. Right? Because Jesus, he doesn't pick God as, as our audience, as a cold-hearted critic, as a distant judge, as an indifferent, powerful, powerful king. Jesus instead offers a revolutionary to his time way of seeing God. A word most religious people at that time would never have used of God. Father. It's ten times in this passage. I mean, Jesus can't say, a few, can't say three words without saying Father again. Almost like he doesn't want you to miss this. So you got, you got, you're living before all these human audiences. Live before your Father. Your Father. Your Father. It's the first time in, in the Gospel of Matthew we're introduced to this, this theme. It's going to become crucial through the rest of the book. And it's why even when Jesus says, okay, and when you pray, here's how you pray. Our Father. That's where you start. God is your Father. The Jesus, he wants to, he, I think he's doing this because he wants to see us, the reward, the real promise of a life lived before the right audience. Right? The reward is, is that, that we have a father as our only audience. The only opinion for you that matters in this world, it's not another critic, and it's not even primarily as a judge. If you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, your primary, the only audience that matters to you is a loving father. And your father is different than a critic. Critics ask if you measure up. Fathers work to build you up. Critics test you. Fathers train you. Critics are hard to please. Just get on YouTube, read the comment section sometime. But good fathers are easy to please. When I, when I was in high school, I was an okay golfer. I wasn't great. I played for our high school team. And so in all the mini golf tournaments I played, I only won once. But it was pretty dramatic. Um, I got to the 17th hole, and I knew if I parred the last two holes, I'd probably win. Um, but on the, the 17th hole, I, I hit a bad shot, and so I ended up with this, about a 60-foot-long putt that I had to putt through the longer grass called the fringe. Um, so it was a long putt. It was a difficult putt, and I, I thought there was no way I'd make par um, with the putt I had in, in front of me. So I was nervous. I took my time. I lined up and off in the distance on a hill was my dad watching, um, watching this. So when I go to, to make the putt, to hit the putt, I instantly knew I hit it way too hard. It was rolling. It went through the long grass. And about 20 feet to go, I, it's lined up right with the hole, but it's, going, it's moving way too quick. 
And so my assumption is it's either going to roll way off the green, it's going to hit the hole and bounce out, and it it doesn't look like it's going to go in. But as it goes, it hits the back of the hole, I mean, kicks a few inches into the the air, which is golf, it's, it's ridiculous, and dropped right in the center of the hole. And off in the distance, my dad on his hill screamed so loud you might have heard it in Kansas. It was about 2002. I mean, just yelled for joy when he saw that putt go in. The reality is, that, listen, that's a tournament none of you care about. None of you want to see my trophy. I still have it. None of you care. But fathers are easy to please. Now we, are, we see our kids take their first wobbly steps. And we don't see the fact that they're going to fall over and land on their face. We see the stability and we're, we're excited for what is to come. Which just highlights the absurdity of how you and I live. Living before the voices and the eyes of critics and people who will never give you the approval you long for, will never give you the praise you long for. We put ourselves in front of these audiences and it is absurd according to Jesus. Here is a father willing to come and enter into your life. And maybe you hear that and either you had a terrible father in life or maybe you think, Tim, I, living before God alone just sounds terrifying to me. Maybe you feel guilty, you don't feel like you measure up. You feel like God knows your secrets, he knows your mess. How in the world could God treat you with love? And yet, that's the thing about fathers. As a father myself, when I see imperfections in my kid, when I see brokenness in my kids, it doesn't make me withdraw. It makes me go in further. It makes me love them more. It makes me give more of myself to them. And that's how good fathers work. They don't see imperfections and think, ah, I'm giving up. No, they... They see what we'll become, and they enter in further to make us into what we can become. That's the gospel story. God saw us flawed, broken, and ruined, and he did what any father would do. He didn't run away. He entered in further. He gave more, and he gave far more of himself than any earthly father will ever give to their children. Giving his own son to die for us, even death on a cross. The reality, if you're living for the audience, for the approval of this world, you have your reward. And it's terrible, isn't it? But if God is your audience, the reward is, is not just some distant life in heaven. It's that, but it's the reward of the Father himself. Not just another critic to please. Not just another audience you have to stand in front of. That our God, the Christian God, came down out of the audience to join us on stage. To join our story, our play, and give it a new ending. That's the one audience worth living in front of because he's not just an audience. He's there with you every day of your life.